Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because my friend and strong supporter of the podcast, Dr. Scott Zona, is back. If you've listened to the whole back catalog, which, A, thank you, uh, he was on the podcast a very long time ago, but he's back today to talk to us about a really cool subject, and that is cyanogenesis, plants that produce cyanide. It's a wacky and wild world full of interesting facts and a lot of cool evolutionary relationships, and I'm not going to steal any of his thunder. I'll let you hear it all from Dr. Zona himself, so let's jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Scott Zona. I hope you enjoy. Right, Dr. Scott Zona, welcome back to the podcast. It has been ages. So for those that haven't listened to the entire back catalog, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Oh, my name is Scott Zona. I am a taxonomist by training, but I've sort of slipped into ecology. Um, yeah, it happens. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, um, I grew up in South Florida and, and I'm currently living in North Carolina. Excellent. And where did the love of plants start for you? Is this a childhood thing that just grew into a career or is it something you kind of discovered later on? Uh, I think it's in my DNA. My mom saved a little essay I wrote in grade school. I must have been probably about eight or nine years old that said I wanted to be a botanist when I grew up. So (laughs) um, I knew from a very early age. Nice. That's excellent. And I mean, from what I've seen of your career, you've dabbled in a lot. Palms have been a big fixation. Litter trapping especially has been a big fixation. But where did the switch to ecology start to happen? Um, partly because the, um, the trend to work now in, in molecular phylogenetics, uh, and I was not in a lab at the time, mm. uh, not working. And I've collaborated with people that have labs, but... Uh, since I don't have a lab at my disposal, I sort of switched to working on things that uh, that I could do on my own without without having a molecular lab or without having to. And, and also, you know, uh, the the cost of doing molecular phylogenetics is substantial. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, costs are coming down and whatnot. But uh, it was, again, kind of cobbling together projects that I could do uh, that didn't cost too much money. Right. So when life denies you lab space and grant funding, become an ecologist. Ta-da. Something like that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, I love seeing your skills applied to the world of ecology because they do feed each other. I mean, it's not one or the other. It's how do we kind of blend what we know about relationships of plants and use that to understand how these plants are making a living, would you say? Right. Right. Yeah. And so the reason we connected today is it a fascinating topic. I mean, something that I've only ever scratched the surface on, but it turns out you've got somewhat of a history with it. And that is cyanogenesis. Yeah, this goes back to I did a postdoc, actually, on the molecular genetics of cyanogenesis. And um, and this was with David Jones at the University of Florida. And he's a well-known figure in in uh, chemical ecology and worked with cyanogenic plants, mostly the the genus Lotus, Lotus caniculatus, uh, bird's foot trefoil. Oh, wow. 
And so uh, that sort of whet my appetite for chemical ecology, and I've never really left it alone since then. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've moved on to other things, and uh, but I've kind of um, dabbled occasionally in chemical ecology when I get the chance. Um, nice. So I did some work with, for example, cyanogenesis in palms, which is not very common, but it does occur <laughs> in palms. Okay. Yeah. So. so broadly speaking, is it just the production of cyanide-based compounds in plants? I mean, how do you define cyanogenesis from a... Okay, so yeah, let's, let's start at the beginning. So cyanogenesis literally means producing cyanide. And so these are plants that have chemicals in them which will uh, break down either spontaneously or under the uh, action of enzymes, digestive enzymes, uh, they'll break down and release cyanide. And cyanide is a uh, you know, pretty potent toxin <laughs> yeah. uh, for ba basically all living things. Uh, so it makes for a darn good defensive chemical <laughs> for plants to have in their tissues. So it's not always just happenstance. It's like a waste product the plants are producing. It has been retooled in some form or another at, through an evolutionary sense as a defense mechanism. Yeah, it, it's. I think it is probably primarily a defense mechanism. Now, uh, cyanide is contains nitrogen. Nitrogen is often a limiting uh, uh, nutrient in plants. Uh, so, uh, for example, when the, if the cyanide or cyanogenic compound is not used for defense, it can be broken down and, and, and the nitrogen can be used elsewhere in the plant. So um, it's, but it's certainly not a waste product, no. Okay, okay. And it's funny because you hear things like this and I think back to some of like what my friend's parents used to say to me uh, when I was growing up, like, oh, if it's from the earth, it can't kill you. And I was, I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> some of the most potent toxins we know our plant derives. So, um. <laughs> and and from what you just said there with, with some of the examples like bird's foot trefoil, which is Fabaceae, and then palms, you know, that's two completely different walks of life. So there's no real phylogenetic signal per se. A lot of plants have converged on this strategy. Throughout the plant kingdom, um, conifers, ferns, uh, angiosperms, I don't know of anything in like the bryophytes or, mm. or lycopods, but um, uh, certainly in ferns, conifers, and vascular or, or uh, flowering plants. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, ferns, you think, okay, this has probably been going on for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, bracken fern is uh, known to be cyanogenic, at least in some races. So, uh, there's an example of a very common widespread fern. And uh, at least some populations are cyanogenic. Nice. And so, you know, you have both the phylogenetic background and the ecologist background to kind of bring these two worlds together. And so what, like, when you bite off a chunk of some form of research, I'm, I'm sure that the world of chemical ecology is huge. And even cyanogenesis probably has a lot uh, to offer many, many minds and many careers. Where did you start to kind of chip off and, and try to understand this process? I mean, what kind of questions were you curious about? Um, yeah, well, most of it is mostly just curious about its distribution in certain groups of plants. And, and so I started with palms, actually, because, you know, I did a lot of work with <laughs> palms. And uh, I was working at the time at Fairchild Tropical Botanic Garden in Miami, and they have a huge palm collection hmm. with uh, 
uh, living material representing all kinds, all lineages of palms. So uh, it was very easy for me to uh, sample uh, leaf material from all kinds of different palms. And so I did this work, oh gosh, back in the 90s with uh, Carl Lewis, who has since gone on to become the director of Fairchild Tropical okay. Botanic Garden. And Carl and I uh, sampled palms. And uh, in fact, as I recall, he was he was uh, still in graduate school at the time. <laughs> And um, and and so and that turned out to be really interesting because it turned out that cyanogenesis is rare but not unknown in palms, hmm. and it occurs in just a couple of of um, uh, well about half a dozen species uh, in the leaf tissue. But then uh, years later, after a hurricane, and I'm trying to remember which one it was. It was Katrina, Rita, or Wilma. One of those three. Hmm. Uh, we had a bad hurricane hit Miami, and it, it knocked out a lot of palms. And for those that could not be saved, it gave me a chance to uh, sample the hearts of palm. You know, this is basically the meristem on palms. And uh, the, since palms have most palms have only one apical meristem, uh, it means destructive sampling. So it's some, not something I could do normally with the collection there. Right, but since right. these palms were knocked down by the hurricane and weren't going to survive, I could sample them. And it turns out, uh, again, I found some uh, rare instances of cyanogenesis in the genus Dipsus. And this is a palm from Madagascar. And uh, there's many species in Madagascar, some of which uh, local people in Madagascar uh, say it's not good to eat them because they have a bitter tasting, heart, you know, uh, apical meristem. In fact, there's one species, Dipsis nauseosus, <laughs> uh, named for its its uh, effect apparently uh, well, well, well. on eating it. <laughs> and and it turns out Dipsis lutescens, which is uh, rare in Madagascar, endangered in Madagascar, but one of the most commonly cultivated ornamental palms throughout the, the tropical world or the subtropical world. Turns out that one, uh, the uh, the heart on that, or the, the apical meristem is strongly cyanogenic. And so I think this has occurred several times in the genus Dipsis. I, I was able to sample, oh gosh, I don't remember exactly how many species I sampled, not very many, uh, but it did turn up in, in uh, a couple of species. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fascinating. I mean, it makes sense too. If you only have one apical meristem, hey, let's protect it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, most people think that palms are kind of chemically boring. Yeah. Uh, that, that all their defense is really just fibers and, 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 you know, um, silica bodies and things that kind of more mechanical defenses, right. but there is, there are some interesting chemical defenses in palms. Huh. And so outside of dipsis, I mean, you mentioned there's maybe a couple to half dozen or something to that effect. I mean, is there a phylogenetic signal there? Or is this something that plants can do de novo without having some sort of evolutionary predisposition for that pathway? Yeah, I think it's evolved lots and lots of different times in the plant kingdom. Huh. Um, and even within palms, I think it's evolved more than once. I love that. And so is there, like from the ecological standpoint, I know like certain alkaloids, you need to be in a pretty nitrogen rich area or have access to nitrogen as a plant. I'm anthropomorphizing here, of course, but uh, to, to really make those compounds, there's certain environmental conditions that need to be met. I mean, is that what we're seeing with some of these palms? Is that could lend to why maybe some are chemically boring and some are doing some pretty fancy stuff? 
Hmm, it could be, uh, you know, um, yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, I I've not looked at it closely enough to 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 think about uh, the ecology of where these plants are growing under what nutrient conditions these plants are growing. Right. Um, hmm. Now I'm thinking. <laughs> that's <laughs> well, dangerous. Yeah. That's that's maybe a yeah a, a subject for another uh, Fair. another discussion maybe. <laughs> <laughs> And so palms, like, where did the cyanogenic journey take you after that? I mean, you've jumped to other families and, and even orders. <laughs> yeah, well, um, so, yeah, I sort of, that was, that, that work uh, on the hearts of palms was published again, was that the early 2000s, whenever Katrina Rita Wilma hit Miami, I can't remember sure. now. Um, so then, uh then I think it was, well, it was about maybe a year and a half ago. Okay. I was reading a, uh, a paper uh, that suggested that the berries of Nandina domestica, uh, the common, a commonly cultivated ornamental shrub here in, in, uh, in my area here in North Carolina, but oh, it's yeah. cultivated all over the U.S., um, that the berries were cyanogenic and that they were responsible for a, a large uh, bird kill in, gosh, I think it was in Georgia. I think you're right. Yeah, I think it was yeah. North Georgia. Um, and but then I, I read the paper, and it was uh, written by, I think they're they're veterinary pathologists who wrote the paper, and they didn't they they found uh, the berries in the the stomachs of the birds, and they found. Uh, necrosis and 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 uh, pathology that suggested cyanide poisoning but they didn't test the berries to see that if there mm. was cyanide produced in the berries and i thought well that's such a simple test to do <laughs> why don't i do that <laughs> so um it turns out uh that nandina uh has been studied is the cyanide or cyanogenic potential of nandina has been looked at but only in the leaves Hmm. Uh, and it turns out the leaves are loaded with cyanide. Oh, uh, yeah. In fact, something like three to six percent of the fresh weight of the leaves can be cy uh, these cyanogenic glycosides. Oh, wow, um, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and and in fact, when I test the leaves, I mean, it's a really quick reaction. It's a uh, just for those who are interested. It's a the fecal anger test. It's it, these are paper, little strips of paper that are impregnated with certain chemicals that mm. are colorless normally, but um, when exposed to cyanide gas, they turn blue. And it's sort of a partially, uh, what's the word I want, semi-quantitative okay. test. So by the, the, the degree of color change will indicate approximately how much cyanide is being released. Uh, so it's an easy thing to do to, to drop a leaf in, the, uh, in a little vial and I add a little toluene just to lyse the cells and suspend the paper over it in, in, from the, the cap of the vial. And with the leaves, just within minutes, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> the paper is turning dark blue. So it's very strongly cyanogenic. That explains why I, you know, you ever head to the southeast or, you know, like zone seven ish where you see them planted heavily and escaping into the wild heavily. Nothing touches them. They are Yeah, spotless. I mean, you look for evidence of herbivory on them and you don't find it. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And that's great if you're, you know, you, you want to grow it in your garden. It, it's it's great because you don't have to worry about uh, pests and diseases. But as you say, it is a, a plant that has escaped in right. the southeast and has become a, a problem in some areas. So, yeah. Dang. Um, <laughs> So um, then going on to the berries, uh, I looked at the berries and the berries were not showing any cyanogenesis, at least initially. Okay. So I, you know, I checked it after about 15 minutes and nothing happening. And I thought, well, this is very interesting. Maybe the berries are not cyanogenic. Um, but I let the, the reaction run overnight and checked it the next day. And that's when I started to see a little bit of cyanogenesis. And it was not a lot. It sure. was not a great deal of cyanogenesis happening, uh, but it was it was definitely, you know, a positive cyanogenic test. And but it was a slow evolution of the of the gas, not the mm. rapid evolution that we saw in the leaves. And that's kind of interesting because I think if an animal were eating the bear and, and the, the cyanide was being liberated very quickly, uh, the animal would would know it and and would stop eating the berries right. or would you know even vomit. Um, I have personal experience with cyanide poisoning uh, from food. Oh, uh, yeah, and and you get you get a you know crummy crummy tummy, uh, upset stomach. Wait, um, wait, wait. We need to go on a tangent here. How do you accidentally <laughs> ingest cyanide food? Okay, this was back when I was doing my my postdoc with cyanogenesis. Um, <laughs> it was around the holidays, Christmas holidays, and I bought these little Italian amaretti cookies oh, imported from Italy. Boy. And I binged on them, as <laughs> I am prone to do with yeah. cookies, yeah. and, you know, got this kind of a seriously upset stomach, which I binged on a lot of cookies in my time, and I've never had a problem <laughs> eating cookies. And so I looked at the the package, and it said that these cookies they're kind of this have this almond flavor, but they're flavored with apricot kernels or apricot seeds. Oh. And apricot seeds are loaded with a cyanogenic glycoside called amygdalin. Oh no. Um, and amygdalin, amygdaloidy is the subfamily that cherries and apricots and whatnot are in. And uh, so I, I took the cookies to the lab uh, that I was in at the time and tested them. And sure enough, they were full of cyanide. Uh, and, you know, if you eat a few cookies, we all have the ability to detoxify a few cookies. That's okay. not a problem. But eating a lot of them all at once, <laughs> then it's a problem. And that's the same thing that's happening with cedar wax wings eating Nandina berries. Here we go. Um, you know, a, a, a mockingbird or some other bird can come along and they'll eat a couple of berries and fly away and that'll be the end of it. Right. Uh, and they have the ability to, all birds have the ability to detoxify a little bit of cyanide. But cedar waxwings are unusual that especially toward the winter, they come in and they will uh, just strip plants of their berries and their seed, you know, their fruits. Um, they, they just are called, it's, it's called hyperphagy. This, this, uh, um, you know, they're just really stuffing themselves with, with food. Mm. And because they're eating so much so fast and these berries are slowly cyanogenic, they don't 
they don't get that 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 feedback of a little upset stomach and wanting to vomit or something. So, you know, they just keep eating and keep eating, keep eating. And then slowly these berries are releasing cyanide in their gut. And there's so many berries that it's overpowering their, their, uh, the, the, the detoxification enzymes that they have in their, in their body. And, uh, that's what was killing these birds. Okay. So finally some nuance to the story because it, it brings up a lot more questions than answers. I mean, you go, okay, no more Nandina on the landscape if you can help it. But then you start thinking like the berries are bright red. They're half the reason these plants get planted, right? They're very beautiful. I understand it. And then you think, well, that's kind of what they want, right? Birds dispersing their seeds. Why would they go and kill their seed dispersers? Well, this is the question. Um, and this is uh, got me, sent me down rabbit holes reading about um, you know, secondary compounds in fruits and how they might affect dispersers. Uh, because certainly, you know, anyone looking at this plant would guess that this is a plant that is dispersed by animals. Yeah. Something is eating those berries. So I was digging in the literature as best I could, uh, trying to find uh, any literature on what is dispersing these plants in their native China and Japan. And uh, kind of not surprisingly, I came up empty handed. I mean, there's <laughs> lots of plants that we just don't know what disperses them. You know, we, we say, well, birds, but you <laughs> right. know, we don't know. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it sort of begs the question, what is dispersing these plants in, in their native habitat? Uh, and then presumably we don't have that disperser here in eastern North America. Uh, and so, you know, birds are taking on that role here in eastern North America. Now, you know, some plants can have some toxins in the berries. And the question is, is the toxin in the berry, uh, is it, is that uh, uh, some, doing something beneficial mm. to the, for the plant? For example, could it be preventing uh, uh, maybe microbes from destroying the fruit before mm. it gets dispersed? Okay. Or could these, these toxins be preventing uh, seed predators from going in and eating this, the fruit and the seed rather than dispersing it. So uh, maybe preventing predators or, or, you know, illegitimate dispersers. Mm. Or, and another possibility is maybe this cyanide, the, the, the cyanogenic glycosides that are in the Nandina fruit are just left over from when it was green, because when the berries are green, they're full of cyanide oh. and it's fast, it's strong. Uh, huh. And maybe as the berries are maturing, the plant is withdrawing that cyanide from the berries, but that has some metabolic cost to the plant. So maybe the plant doesn't make every effort to <laughs> withdraw every little last molecule of cyanogenic glycosides from the plant right. uh, or from the fruit. So, uh, and as long as the dispersers that, that uh, normally disperse the, the seeds are not harmed by a little bit of cyanide in the fruit, um, you know, then it's not a problem for the plant. The plant still gets its dispersal and the animals still get their, their meal. And, and, and again, it comes back to the strange feeding behavior of cedar waxwings. Right. Yeah. Almost a perfect storm, an unfortunate one, but you know, there's just this happenstance of the combination yeah. of a novel food item on a continent it never meant to be on. And then, this hyperphagy, like, 
I, and what's, like, what's interesting yeah. is that one of the food plants of cedar wax wings, they're, they're natural food plants here in North America, are, are the wild cherries that occur throughout Eastern mm. North America. They too have cyanogenic glycosides in their fruits, but the birds, the cedar wax wings, have the ability to digest the fruit without cleaving the, the sugar molecule off the cyanide and releasing that cyanide gas. Oh, wow. And they poop out the cyanogenic glycoside intact, huh. which sort of makes me think about, hmm, what the ecology of cyanogenic poop, but we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I mean, if I didn't make it clear at the beginning, these glycosides are toxic to the plant if or cyanide is toxic to plants as well as animals. Oh. So the plants control that and, and, and harness that toxicity by joining the cyanide to a sugar molecule. Okay, okay. And once it's joined to the sugar molecule, it's harmless. And it's only when, a, when a, an animal eats it and digests it and cleaves that sugar molecule away, that's when the cyanide is released. Uh, and th that can happen either by enzymes in the herbivore's mouth or stomach, or it can be enzymes in the plant, but they're kept in a different compartment within the plant. Ah. Uh, for example, um, uh, in, in most, well, I shouldn't say most, a lot of plants, uh, the cyanogenic glycoside is stored in the vacuole of the cell hmm. and the enzymes, the glucosidases that cleave that, cyan, that sugar off the cyanide, those are kept in the apoplastic uh, space there, in the cell walls, basically. And, and that's kind of a, a brilliant thing. So oh God, a, yeah. you know, a grasshopper comes along and starts munching on, on a plant, and it's going to be mixing you know, the <laughs> enzyme from the cell walls with the cyanogenic glycoside from the vacuole, and you know, presto, uh, cyanide is being released, and the grasshopper gets a mouthful of cyanide and goes elsewhere. Um, that truly is brilliant. I mean, yeah. I couldn't make it's, it up if I try. <laughs> it, it is good. Yeah. In fact, uh, in, in uh, sorghum, sorghum is cyanogenic. Oh, no. The, the, the leaves. And in sorghum, the enzyme is stored in the epidermal cells of the leaves. And the cyanogenic glycosides is stored in the mesophyll cells of the leaf. And again, something comes along, caterpillar or whatever, starts munching on those leaves. It's going to mix those things together and cyanide is released. Dang. I love that. That's so cool. I mean, in a way, it is almost a physical defense because you need that damage to even make it possible. Well, and, and you know, it's not just cyanogenic glycosides. Um, uh, lots of other toxins are dealt with that way by joining them up with sugar it makes it renders them non-toxic so uh the uh uh the uh, glucosinolates from mustards mm. they're handled in the same way uh they're bound on a sugar and they're non-toxic but uh an enzyme that's usually stored in the plant uh uh is you know in another compartment in the plant uh, once those things are mixed together it releases that uh, that uh glucosinolate and you know the the mustard uh, uh, flavor that that is so <laughs> repellent to most animals, except for humans, except us. <laughs> oh wow, that is so cool! And and I mean, 
the the cyanide part of it, it makes sense. I mean, cyanide by its very chemistry is toxic to all carbon-based life. And so this really is sort of a last ditch Hail Mary attempt at defending your tissues or you know, reproductive uh, attempts until yeah, it's yeah. just absolutely necessary. Yeah, and 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 uh, uh, most animals will sense, you know, a, a little bit of cyanide. They'll they'll start to sense the the you know the upset the stomach, and you know they'll 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 move on. They'll find something better to eat. Uh, <laughs> not many animals that I know want to eat something cyanogenic. Except, <laughs> dun dun. <laughs> there are specialist herbivores that can 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 deal with the cyanogenesis. In fact, there are several insects that can sequester those cyanogenic glycosides and use them for their own defense. Tricky, tricky. So, uh, a good example are uh, some of the butterflies that uh, lay eggs on Passiflora. Passiflora. Oh. is known to be cyanogenic. Uh, they have very odd cyanogenic glycosides with ring compounds on them. Hmm. But, uh, you know, if you look at like the Gulf fritillary butterfly, you know, the caterpillars on that are bright orange and black bristles, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're obviously very easy to spot, but it's probably warning color coloration, you know, to warn birds that they are toxic because they are sequestering the cyanogenic glycosides from Passiflora as well as producing a few novel uh, cyanogenic glycosides themselves. Hmm. Uh, so uh, there's an example of, of how an insect is, has gotten around the whole cyanogenic glycoside defense uh, and, in fact, is kind of using it for its own advantage uh, <laughs> and uh, turning tables on the plant. Yeah, if there's one thing I love, it's a good evolutionary arms race. <laughs> 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 I mean, it just goes to show you how... You know, nature when forced into sort of uh, the 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 struggles of nature, right? Dread and tooth and claw. That uh, just these innovative ways they come up to defend themselves. And plants are so good at it because they're so defenseless. But then you have caterpillars, which are just juicy little morsels for any sort of insectivore or even non-insectivore. And it makes sense that they too would both be at these intense chemical warfare games with anything that wants to eat them. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, yeah, as you say, it's a struggle out there. So. <laughs> um. And so you mentioned a little bit about the chemistry and chemical ecology, the chemistry side of it. I mean, it sounds to me from what you hinted at, there, there's more than one way to make these cyanic compounds. And is there sort of these phylogenetic signals as to how different groups do that? Yeah, there, I, there is. Um, there are about, oh gosh, I think a little over a a hundred different cyanogenic glycosides that are known uh, where, where the structure has been elucidated. elucidated. Um, and I should hasten that I'm not a chemist. Fair. So That's I, fair. Mean, this is, <laughs> I don't, I don't pretend to understand all the chemistry. <laughs> Nor do um, I. And there are certain, for example, I said Passiflora has these weird cyclic cyanogenic glycosides. And we see that in Passiflora. And it was also in Turnera the genus Turnera. Hmm. And Turnera used to be in its own family, but now it is in the Passiflorasee. Um, so it has similarities, you know, in the DNA, similarities in the anatomy and whatnot, and similarities in the cyanogenic chemistry. Um, so uh, there are some occasionally some places where you see a, a phylogenetic signal nice. there. Uh, but other places like 
the the cyanogenic glycoside prunacin from prunus. <laughs> uh, prunacin is found all over the plant kingdom, and, <laughs> and it's not just the rose family or anything like that. So, um, you know, yeah, it, it's just uh, it's it's just been reinvented uh, again and again by plants. Yeah. I mean, natural selection works on what's available and sometimes the easiest pathway is, you know, just set predisposed going to happen yeah. uh, if it's forced that way. Yeah. These are all uh, synthesized from amino acids. That's what, kind of where the nitrogen comes from mm. it's in, in these. Uh, and, and these pathways may well be conserved uh, over across, you know, large, swathes of the of the the plant kingdom excellent so one of the other groups that i think comes up and you actually brought up the fabaceae earlier in our conversation that's one i know across the board there's a lot of cyanogenesis going on there i think even into the wild someone has suggested that chris mccandless or whatever he was ate some bad peas and there's cyanide involved something to that effect i don't know for sure but <laughs> fabaceae is doing some wacky cyanide chemistry too right yeah, and of course, you know, for for most Fabaceae, nitrogen is not a really severely <laughs> limiting uh, element there. So maybe they, you know, maybe they can afford to be uh, a little more experimental with their cyanogenesis. Uh, so yeah, a lot of a lot of legumes are known to be cyanogenic. There was some really interesting work just last it came out just last year on cyanogenesis in Trifolium repens. This, so this is. This is white clover. This huh. is a common plant all over eastern North America. And it turns out Trifolium repens is uh, a tetraploid, it's allotetraploid. Oh. And these were, this was work on, uh, published by uh, Kenneth Olson et al. And they were looking at the progenitor species. And it turns out the cyanogenic glycoside comes from one progenitor species. And the glucosidase enzyme comes from another progenitor genitor species. And it's only when those two huh. species came together did, did white clover have the ability then to have both the enzyme and the, the glycoside uh, in, its, in its tissues. What? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And white clover uh, uh, exists in various uh, uh, morphs uh, because some can, uh, they, they, they have the ability to be cyanogenic, but some uh, lack the gene for the uh, the enzyme, or some lack the gene for the glucosidase. Wow! Uh, and some lack both genes, so of course they're they're non toxic. Uh, but uh, it's it's pretty interesting how that um, this work uh, that identified how cyanogenesis arose in white clover. Pretty cool story. That is awesome, and yeah, it's. <laughs> It just goes to show you how, you know, quote unquote, creative plants are in an evolutionary sense. And I always come back to what my evolution professor says, like they do whatever they want and stop bringing up examples. <laughs> like, yeah, they kind of do. And so here you have a very common species, a stable hybrid and this wonderful natural experiment where you see what happens when it does happen. When one partner gets one gene, the other one doesn't have, you know, and just think of all of the ways you can jump off from just that observation and ask different questions about defense performance conditions it's just ripe for the taking yeah a lot there's and there's been lots of work on the chemical ecology of trifolium uh in 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 natural habitats 
Uh, I think that was uh, Rodolfo Dierso did that work okay. uh, years ago. Uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's a it's a great system. <laughs> I love that when uh, you just presented with it. Here you go, and it's in most of our lawns. If we yeah, uh, really relax about lawn care. <laughs> You could, you know, do your field work just on outside your back door here. Oh, shucks. <laughs> oh, the hours of, I'm sure there's still plenty of things to be anxious about. But anyway, I mean, the point is, is that here's a great example of a plant. And I mean, we've talked about Nandina, a bunch of other things too, that people will be familiar with. And one thing that always kind of amuses me, and I understand it, is when people get fired up about, oh, this plant is toxic stuff, like, oh, the giant hogweed. And I'm like, well, if you only knew what most of the plants were doing out there, you you should probably calm down a little bit because unless you're going out looking for it, they're not going to come into your house and hurt you. But exactly. One thing you're hinting at throughout this whole conversation is just how common this can be in nature and how many plants are doing this. So, you know, in your literature review and, and your familiarity with the plant kingdom, how often is this happening? And are there good examples of things we encounter almost daily in our lives if you're in the temperate zone? Yeah, so there are. Um, I mean, you know, apple seeds are uh -oh. cyanogenic. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not going to hurt you to swallow an apple seed or two or three. You know, <laughs> if you're one of those people that eats the whole apple, you know, core and all, um, you're fine. It's not a problem. But if you were actually to take those seeds out and, and subject them to a chemical test, they are, in fact, cyanogenic. Uh, so many things in, in the rose family. Mm. So cherries. Um, uh, uh, you know, peaches, plums, all those things. And, and we're talking really more about the leaves here, not the fruits. Mm, the fruits right, obviously right. have been selected over, you know, generations for being sweet and, and non-toxic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then other garden plants are, are common. Um, some of the ewes, taxus oh. species are cyanogenic. Um, I mentioned bracken fern earlier. Uh, and then if we get into the flowering plants, uh, flax, linum, is, is cyanogenic. Uh, lima bean. Huh. Uh, cassava. Now, cassava is, is interesting because not only is are the leaves cyanogenic, but the tuberous roots are cyanogenic as well. And, of course, that's what is uh, a major food source for so many people right. in, in the tropics. Uh, and so cassava has to be prepared a certain way uh, to, to get rid of the toxin before it can be safely consumed. Um, hmm. So cassava, what else? Uh, I mentioned sorghum, uh, loquats, are, uh, of course, that's rose family again. Elderberry, sambucus huh. uh, is uh, cyanogenic in the leaves and a little bit in the fruit, actually. But hmm. again, a little bit of cyanide is not going right. to hurt anybody. Right. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's just, it's, pops up kind of all over the plant kingdom. And I bet most people who garden have something in their garden that is cyanogenic. <laughs> Heck yeah. I love that. And it, it also kind of hints at this idea that, you know, one of the questions I always get when I give a talk and say like, oh, you know, like azalea is very toxic, but people go, well, deer eat them in my yard. Yeah. They eat a little bit or a herd comes in and everyone eats a little bit. It's not perfect. Defenses are never perfect. And there's always something that's either desperate enough or has figured out a way to circumvent it. Yeah, the deer were pretty desperate this past winter in my garden. I can <laughs> tell you that. I, I know that feeling too well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My azaleas took a hit. Um, but yeah, it's 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 um it is one of those things where where cyanide is is a great defense against generalists. Mm. So 
you know, things like like deer or, or any herbivore that's sort of a generalist herbivore, cyanide is a great defense for that. But this, it's the specialist herbivores that you got to watch out for. So these, you know, the things that are specialized on Passiflora, the, the, the butterflies that go for Passiflora, like the, the zebra longwing butterfly, the Gulf fritillary, they're all perfectly able to deal with the cyanogenesis in, that, that comes out of the leaves. Um, there are other specialist herbivores out there, insect herbivores that can deal with cyanide in their diet. Uh, there are lemurs in Madagascar, I believe it is, that are eating bamboo shoots that are strongly cyanogenic. Whoa. And whether these lemurs just have the ability to detoxify, you know, all the cyanide that they're taking in, or if maybe like the, the cedar wax wings and, and cherries, they're able to uh, consume it and kind of shunt that cyanogenic glycoside away without <laughs> without uh, liberating the cyanide. Uh, I don't think anybody's really studied it. Yeah. Uh, but these these lemurs are specialists on on bamboo shoots, and some of which are just extremely cyanogenic. Fascinating. I mean, both the fact that you're looking at all of these different plants that do that, but then uh, you know, a mammal. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I generally insects, you can kind of understand there's a ton of generation time. They're doing sure. weird things chemically uh, themselves, but mammals, man, I mean, that's like, that's a little close yeah. to home. <laughs> Very close to home. Yeah. Especially yeah, <laughs> primates, primates nonetheless. So yeah. yeah so I'm not going to push the boundaries. I don't know about you. <laughs> well, just go easy on the Italian amaretti cookies. <laughs> it's just because you have and you paid for it. So I'm just so happy you're here to be able to tell about this today. And me, you and me both. <laughs> and what a fruitful time you've had since then. Indeed. Well, hey, I guess, you know, we all need our warnings on <laughs> specific types of cookies, although most don't stand a chance in my house. So. <laughs> I'm with you. Excellent. Well, Scott, this has been wonderfully eye-opening and fascinating and and really cool. I mean, and I hope people that are gardening don't take this as a threat, but like go out and appreciate another level to what the plants are doing because they can't get up and run. They they have to protect themselves That's somehow. Right. Yeah. That's right. Just don't go munching on Nandina leaves and probably don't plant it in your garden if it isn't there already. Yeah, well, you know, the good thing is that the 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 horticulturists have come up with these non-fruiting nandinas. Yes. Uh, these cultivars that have beautiful foliage and they have great fall color and all that, but they rarely flower and, and rarely produce any fruit. So if you want nandina in your garden, those are the ones to go for. All right. We'll look for those. But Dr. Zona, where do people go to find out more about the work you are doing and will be doing into the future? Um. I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot, so uh, <laughs> Twitter is a good place to find me. I'm on Instagram as well. Uh, so those are two good places to find me. Excellent. Well, I love your posts. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about that. I'll save everyone the trouble and put links to Twitter and Instagram so people can keep a finger on the pulse. But uh, again, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Oh, thank you, Matt. And, and keep up the great work. I mean, I, I love listening to your show and... and uh, it's it's just I think you're doing great stuff here. So well, thanks, Scott. It it's, it's always nice to have people like you supporting me. So I appreciate that. Amazing, amazing stuff. I hope you appreciate plants even more after hearing conversations like this, because it just goes to show you how creative in an evolutionary sense plants have had to be because they sit still. They're static. They can't get up and run away from threats. I never want to make anyone afraid of plants. It's just a matter of pick and choose what you put in your mouth and try to consume wisely. I think that's a great lesson for everyone 
anywhere, no matter what, even if it's not related to just plants. I thank Dr. Zona for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and I highly recommend you follow him on his social media accounts, all of which are linked in the show notes for this episode over at indefenseplants.com slash podcast. That is the best way to follow up on all of the cool stuff you hear in each episode. Before I let you go, I do have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Peter. Peter signed up at the producer credit level over at patreon.com slash plants. So he is one of the many patrons helping make this show possible. I'm serious when I say I could not be doing Indefensible Plants without your financial support each and every week. So thank you to everyone that kicks in just a little bit each month. You can also support the show by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and stickers. You can find all of those links over at indefenseplants.com slash podcast as well. And at the very least, make sure you hit that subscribe button. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. As always, keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.